0: All right, let's dive into our lectionary text. We're going to kind of go through some of these ideas around knowing and belief, and we're doing it through the story of uh, John chapter 3. It'll be up on the screen. It's in the bulletin if you want to read along. And um, we're in the second Sunday of Lent. So the second Sunday of Lent in the next few weeks, uh, we get out of our gospel text for the year and uh, gospel book for the year, and we go into John for the next few weeks and looking at these stories. So I'll start us in verse 1. It's a little long, 17 verses, so it's a little longer than most lectionary texts, but um, you can follow along, maybe close your eyes if you'd like to just listen to it. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I told you about earthly things— and you do not believe, how can you believe believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that for whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. Okay, so with so many verses, um, this text can be understood and talked about in a variety of different ways. So, by no means... By no means take uh, my word as the definitive statement on any passage, but um, I just want to look at some ideas this morning to to get us thinking on this text. And it's it's a it's a scripture that we've talked about here before, and so I wanted to to look at it in in a different way. Um, So I wanted to do this through the lens of how do we really know anything, and how do we really you know know what we believe or what we've held as beliefs. I think. I really affirm all the uh, perspectives that were, were shared here that, um, you know, to a certain degree, if we're honest, we, we just really don't know a lot. I mean, we we have beliefs that our parents teach us as we grow up, and we kind of take that as our worldview, like Laura said. And then at some point along the way, maybe we have a shift, maybe something happens in our life, then we see things differently. And that, for all of us, um, happens at different ages and at different seasons in our lives. Um, so to get us thinking about how people have approach this question of knowing and believing, I just want to give um, some reflection on uh, how we we can think about this. So um, the early philosophers grappled with this, and I have a a slide here. Um, So um, for instance, Plato, so epistemology is the theory of um, how we know, the theory of knowledge. So epistemology is just the fancy word for um, how we theorize about what we know, and how we know what we know, all right? Um, and so for for Plato, you know, there was um, a universal uh, place um, of forms, the good of forms, and this is uh, where you came from. It's where this, the idea of the soul came from, the good of the forms, the idea of the perfect, and in that world, you were you were born into a body, but you have a soul that comes from a good of forms where all these sort of universal truths exist. So they they philosophized that instead of, you know, when you learn something, you, you don't actually learn it, you recall it from the good of forms. So that was one um, early philosophical idea of how um, we know truth, is that you, if it's true, then it comes from the, this world of forms from which you also came from, and you you not only learn it, but you, you recall it. So that's um, an oversimplification, but that's one way of thinking about it. Um, another way of thinking about uh, knowledge is what we've kind of already said, but there's two phrases that I think are helpful. A priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge. So a priori knowledge is something that you can um, reason. It's knowledge that you can figure out without sort of prior experience. Um, so that think of... Think of reason so that 's a priori knowledge a posteriori is what claudia is talking about it 's knowledge from experience. you went to the desert and you experienced how hot it was, and you know that the desert where you went is hot so that 's another way to, to think about this. Um, we had that slide, which I think is a helpful um, it 's a helpful story the one before that um, so has anybody heard of plato 's allegory of the cave? I know most probably have. Heard this in uh, high school or maybe a college uh, philosophy class. Um, the basic premise is, is um, a thought experiment, and it's in one of Plato's books uh, in a dialogue with Socrates. And basically the thought is there are people that are living in this cave, and they've lived in this cave, um, chained and imprisoned since the time they were born. And so you can see here in the picture that this person is chained. He can't, he's, he's sitting down. He can't see anything. All he knows in life are the projections on the wall. So there's a fire behind him. People are walking by. There's kind of a little puppet show. And um, they think that the shadows on the wall are all that there is in reality. And one day, one of the prisoners um, breaks free of his shackles and goes outside. And starts, his eyes start to adjust to the light. And he starts to see in color for the first time. And starts to see three-dimensional objects for the first time and starts to realize that his entire construction of reality was just but mere shadows. And that's a way of uh, talking about um, how do we really know what we know is perhaps just a shadow of reality. Um, And there's a lot of theorizing about this, but um, we can talk about that another time. It's just, I think, a helpful um, story for Questioning what we really know as truth, um, at least being open and willing to to question that. Um, so uh, let's see where. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, the second era, the second episode of Black Mirror, which I talk about the show a lot. BBC's Black Mirror. Um, it's a rough episode. So if your pastor recommends it to you, just you know, no, it's um, it's um, beyond PG thirteen. It's yeah, it's definitely beyond PG thirteen. So. Um, just take that. Um, but it delves into a, a similar theory um, about how, um, you know, it's Black Mirror science fiction, but about how our realities are constructed for us. Um, like, for instance, today, um, it's worth contemplating to the degree through which our experience is completely mediated now through technology. All right. Um, our phones, our TVs, computers, even our ability to travel in cars and planes, all of those technologies mediate how we understand our world and reality. And that's just growing um, more and more so as we um, um, are attached to our devices. Um, I don't know if it was Marshall McLuhan uh, said, you know, we create our tools and then our tools in turn create us, which is another way of saying, um, you know, we create, we shape these uh, devices and then they project back to us the reality that we perceive as truth. It's the only reality we know, but perhaps it's mere shadows on the wall. Um, our experience of reality might not actually be um, what is real. All right, this is, uh, we're getting philosophical here. Uh, it's second Sunday in Lent, so bear, bear with me. Um, just to even think about the scientific discoveries of the last hundred years and what they've told us about um, reality as we know it and how they've changed um, the way humans perceive the world and live in the world uh, is radically different today than it was in the beginning of the 20th century. It's just phenomenally different. I mean, think from planes to artificial intelligence— uh, to negative things like the atomic bomb I and mean, they've just completely altered uh, human history for for better or for worse um, You know, we now more know more about the universe um, at the subatomic level in the universal level than um, We ever have before and we've learned so much just in the last 20 years and in the last 20 years We've discovered that 85 percent of the total mass of the universe is dark matter um, and when that's added to dark energy, it makes up 95% of the total mass and energy that exists in the universe. And we only know that not through observable means. Uh, like, our best technology doesn't necessarily observe it, we just calculate it. And, um, you know, people much smarter than, than I can can figure out those those calculations. But now we know that 95% of the total mass and energy of the universe is this inexplicable dark matter that we can't even observe. I and mean, that that is wild, um, which just makes us question, you know, how much are we limited by our own perceptions and senses and how much are we looking at shadows on the wall? If our best scientific minds perhaps are like the men in the cave, only observing these shadows. Uh, the Venn diagram that was uh, up is also another helpful way, perhaps in thinking about... Uh, beliefs. You have your beliefs on one side, you have truths maybe on another side, and then they, they cross in the middle. And sometimes, you know, we might be... Uh, the, it's kind of dark, but it says poorly justified beliefs. Like, our beliefs might be true, but we don't necessarily have the the right reasons to, like, justify those beliefs, but they might be true. And then a way of thinking about knowledge is, like, um, where those two intersect, and then you have, like, the experience or you have the sort of reasoning of, you know, science or something to to kind of justify... Um, what you believed in the truth, and then how you know that it 's maybe a, a helpful um, diagram as we as we think about what we know. Um, all of this to say is that we walk around as contradictions of both belief and unbelief and everything in between um, and what we probably really don 't know, even the wisest among us um, what we think we know is rather subjective. Experience of the world. Um, we often think that uh, I think fundamentalism is that we've talked about in the past couple weeks, especially um, you know evangelical Christians broadly or fundamental Christians or what we sometimes call like traditional background. Um, that people believe like really strongly, like they hold really tightly to their beliefs. Um, but perhaps those that hold onto their beliefs very tightly. Um, so this might be understood, uh, Paul Tillich calls this the unbroken myth. We, Laura kind of referenced it, like you, you're given a construct of reality in the world, maybe from your religious background or your parents, and that is sort of the unbroken myth of how you experience the world, and, and we'll just include like our religious worldview in there. And then something happens, and, and perhaps it shatters that that unbroken myth and turns it into turns to a broken myth. And what you'll see a lot of times is that uh, fundamentalist Christians— um, they, their unbroken myth is shattered, but they can't, they can't deal with it, so they double, they double back down, um, in the, in the sort of the realm of unbroken myth, so, um, a lot of fundamental Christians, they don't necessarily, um, believe things really strongly, it's actually repressed uncertainty, so it's like, um, it it appears like they believe what they believe really strongly, but it's actually just deep-seated uncertainty that is repressed, and then, it manifests itself as strong belief, but it's not really, it 's not really strong belief; it just like manifests on the outside as strong belief. Um, so you see this in like fundamentalist Christians who are obsessed with apologetics i 'm sure bob you 've met some people that uh, in your days have been obsessed with apologetics, and you have to think like somebody that 's really obsessed apologetics in, in Christian talk is just the defense of the Christian faith like people are really obsessed with like all the arguments to defend the Christian faith, and you have to think that like if you really believed you would not be super obsessed with, like, defending your belief. That's just a manifestation of repressed unbelief and uncertainty. Um, So that's perhaps another way of of understanding this. Um, Lastly, unbelief or uncertainty can function uh, psychologically in a community like ours, um, where a lot of people have gone through the experience of, like, an unbroken myth being shattered and then trying to, like, pick up the pieces after that. You see differently than perhaps... Um, the way you were raised, or the way um, your religious tradition um, taught you what to believe, and then that was shattered and perhaps you find a community like mission hills it's you know fairly open minded tries to ask tough questions um, but the the church can um, exist as a security blanket in that um, in that space, so you can. Feel free to express your own doubts, your own questions, your own concerns. Like, you know, we're all walking around in our lives and we're thinking, I don't know if I really believe this. And you find a church like Mission Hills, you're like, I can finally, like, get the weight off my chest and express this doubt and uncertainty. But the church functions as the mechanism for your belief so that you can express your doubt Unknowing and uncertainty, so the church does the believing for you it 's a um, yeah Peter Rollins calls this the church as a security blanket um, so you may not believe, but it 's okay because the church um, believes for you. Does that make sense? All right, maybe this will make sense all right, so we don 't have any children in here, right okay, um, so we'll use the Santa analogy for this um, so. Um, is, so in this—yeah, I yeah, don't want to burst too many bubbles this morning. Uh, so the congregation um, is like the parent who gets the psychological benefit of their kids believing in Santa. They don't actually—like, the parent doesn't actually believe in Santa. Like, they are Santa. Uh, but they get the psychological benefit of the belief through the child. So the child, like, comes in wide-eyed, and they truly believe in Santa— and even though the parent doesn't believe in Santa, they get that like, that ben- that psychological benefit of belief through the child. And then when the child stops believing, there's like a sense of loss from the parent because they were getting the psychological benefit of their child believing in Santa. And so when they don't, it's like, oh, you feel the weight of that loss. And so the church can function in a very similar way where you may not believe, or you may have uncertainty in your belief, but it's okay because, like, the church believes on your behalf, and it makes you feel safe and secure. Um, that's another way that, psychologically, you may have uncertainty or doubt but the church can believe on your behalf. So why are we talking about this, right? So I want to just look at the character of Nicodemus because he's, he's, um, he's a recurring character in the, in the Gospel of John. And he's a very wealthy Pharisee, uh, and he visits Jesus in the night. I think that's very interesting. It's like comes to Jesus in the night. We're not sure why. Maybe he doesn't want to be seen by other Pharisees. But um, I tend to think that this is a, a genuine effort by him to, to want to figure something out. He wants to know something about Jesus. I mean, he's. Um, I really think he's genuine, and his coming up to Jesus and questioning him about his teaching. You know, I want to know what, you know, how, how he says this thing. Like, how can these things be? I think he's genuine when he asks those things. Um, but we know that he misses, he misses the mark, and Jesus kind of, you know, corrects him and gives him these kind of mysterious uh, responses about the wind blowing and the spirit moving and needing to be born from above. Um, and that phrase, being born from above, we talk about it a lot at Mission Hills. Um, most people think that that is, um, a invitation to a type of conversion. So an invitation into a new way of, of seeing and being in the world. But for this Pharisee, who's already, I mean, Jesus mentions, you know, you're already a a teacher of Israel. You're a religious, religious guy. You know, you know lots of stuff intellectually. He knows the law backwards and forwards, presumably, but there's something that he's, he's missing, and Jesus gives these mysterious statements about it, and he's like, how, how can this be? Um, and I would imagine that most of us here in church, like, we, we fancy ourselves as people who know a fair amount about Jesus, know good about theology. Someone in the back has a PhD in theology, like, we know, um, but it seems a little arrogant to even think that we would know Jesus and what Jesus meant better than Nicodemus. I mean, this is a guy who lived with Jesus. I mean, he knew Jesus so well. He knew where he was staying. He goes to his house in the middle of the night. He comes from the same time and culture and religious background as Jesus. Presumably, Nicodemus knows a lot more about Jesus than Americans 2,000 years later. Um, And I want us just to think about that prospect of how much more, perhaps, Nicodemus got things than we could ever get things. How does our knowledge of Jesus compare to Nicodemus's knowledge? Uh, And we've spoken about these similar ideas for the past few weeks. Um, And I think it's worth reiterating that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, I don't think right belief um, should be our aim. Um, And even though we say that... um, we, you know, disavow this sort of dynamic of so much of Christianity being about having the right beliefs or knowing the right things. Um, sometimes that can still function in our lives as primary, just because it's so ingrained in a lot of us that come from a religious culture or a Christian background. So, in Lent, as a season of transformation, because that's that's really what this for, the forty days um, leading up to Easter really call us into is to really question. Um, the journey from Jesus's um, 40 days in the wilderness, and then Jesus's journey to the cross. And what might that experience of transformation be within each of us? And how might we enter an embrace of the mystery and the complexity and the beauty of life? I like to think, and maybe this is a place where we can close our, our conversation, that Jesus's words to Nicodemus and um, maybe how we can um, view a lot of uh, the teachings in the Gospels and the stories are like poetry. The aim of poetry is not to say, what does this mean? I I need a solitary answer for this. But they're provoking transformation. They're stirring something within us. So Jesus' mysterious phrases here in this conversation, you must be born from above, signals a kind of conversion, an invitation into a transformative experience for Nicodemus. Perhaps for Nicodemus it was a deconversion from the way that he was um, so legalistically and literally trying to understand Jesus. Poetry, art, music are great demonstrations of the embrace of the totality of life, not seeking objective truth, but rather a process of transformation an experience of life. Um, a guy named Adam Phillips, he is writing about psychoanalysis, but he says this, I read as poetry so that I don't have to worry about whether it's true or even useful, but only whether it's haunting, moving, intriguing, or amusing. I read as poetry. Jesus invites Nicodemus into that kind of transformation. And he's talking about the wind. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Poetry and transformation comes not necessarily through knowing or right belief, but um, an embrace of unknowing and the mystery. It's exactly what all uh, all of you expressed earlier. Transformation uh, leads us into the eternal um, here and now. Um, You know, we could go into a whole thing on John 3.16 and John 3.17, but it's an embrace of the eternity, the eternal life that begins here and now. The mysterious universe that we inhabit in all of our unknowing. So, as we continue this journey of Lent together, uh, may we not cling so tightly to our religious constructs of God. May we not be afraid of a broken myth, because in the broken myth, we may find ourselves born again. Let's pray.